Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrædder alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker. 70s and I had no lines at all on my face, would I ever need to show sadness or anger? <laughs> Surely I would be in a perpetual state of bliss. And, and maybe it's worth it. I did have the thought, I had the whole thing of going, it would be lovely just to be like, and like, when would you be down? Like if you were 78 and you're still in hit films and you're coming in going, can I hear the drums, Fernando? And your skin is perfect. When do you fucking need to look angry? <laughs> Maybe Or disappointed. Life's not let you down in any way. But but if you're in a film and you're supposed to be acting maybe it, no. she didn't need to do any acting no she just needed she to turn up to. and be fucking fabulous Cher. yeah yeah absolutely if i was Cher, i you know i wouldn't i, I wouldn't have lived any other life <laughs> no regrets Mm-mm. i'm a feminist but i have to admit i'm not sure i know the proper names for all the bits of my nunu <laughs> i'm not sure i could label it correctly is that bad i'm a feminist but I also could not name all the bits of Margaret K. Bonsmith's Nunu. Well, I asked you on a chart. I mean, I don't know if they look the same as mine. No, exactly. It could be, wouldn't. you know, no. Well, we can compare later in the dressing room. <laughs> I'm scared now. I'm a feminist, but earlier today, I did Google who Cher's doctor is. Not now, and I wouldn't ever, but just thought, just in case when I'm 75, I'm not a feminist anymore. And I just want to know, I mean, I wouldn't go to the extent she's gone to, but I'm just saying, if I was 75 and I wanted a little, I mean, someone must come along with a Black and Decker of some sort and do a polish. I wouldn't go under the knife, but I'd have a polish. And I'm, I don't know, like, would, can any of you say you wouldn't have a polish at 75? Unless you're 75, you can't say that, so stop judging me. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but when I was singing the admittedly unfeminist song, Do you love me? Do you think I'm pretty? And my seven-year-old daughter said, Well, I definitely think you're pretty. I didn't think, oh, God, my daughter has doubts about her love for me. I thought, yeah, someone thinks I'm pretty. 
I'm a feminist, but today I described a man as someone who comes to my husband's poker game, like I was Samantha in Bewitched. <laughs> I'm sorry, but my husband has a poker game. It's not my poker game. I occasionally play poker in it, but he has a proper boys' poker game, which at one point he said I wasn't allowed to go to because it was boys only. I know. No, you win that. He yeah. was... No, he's, he relented when I explained to him feminism. <laughs> Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Margaret K. Bond-Smith and very special guests Danielle Ward, Anna Crilly and Garrett Millerick talking about living with regret. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White and with me today is Margaret Caborn-Smith. <laughs> Have you had a guilty week or a feminist week, Margaret Caborn-Smith? Oh, I've had a super feminist week. Uh, I've made my husband do all of the childcare. Yay! <laughs> I mean, in a way though, he should do it because he's their father. Exactly. And you're exactly. working. Well, I don't think men say that, do they? They don't say, this week I've made my wife do all of the childcare because no, I've been I at work. No, but I certainly let him know that's how I fucking feel. Yeah. If that does happen. Yes, absolutely. Is he minding the children now? God, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how enjoyable. Just give us a cheer if your partner is minding children for you at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Listen to how excited they, they are. They really are excited to be out of the house. That's it. And I think we are going to cover children tonight because the theme cover of them. We're going, to co- we're going to cover them. We're going to put blankets over them just to silence them just, a bit because they're, oh, they're noisy, just, children. <laughs> because the theme of the show is regret. So. No, listen, guys, I mean, both ways, okay? Both ways. You can regret having them, you can regret not having Absolutely. them. Absolutely. And. Two roads diverge into a wood, and I, I am fucked whichever way I go. Yeah. That is... The Truth road say. less travelled by is just as regretful as the other one. Yeah. Hello, someone's coming late. Were you late because of a child stopping you being here? Dog sitting, they're just as bad. They are are are. just as bad. If not worse, dogs. They're worse. They don't learn. They don't learn to talk. They don't learn to talk. They don't learn to microwave things. No. They don't learn to get up and get their own yogurt out of the fridge so you can sleep late on a Sunday. Every day they need to be up. They don't learn to walk themselves. They don't ever go to school. No. And they will never visit you in an old person's home because they'll be dead before you. Oh. Oh, well, am I wrong? Oh. I, I mean, that's simple maths. Come we, on. We're slagging off dogs for dying. Is this no, the point that we've got to? We're not slagging them off. We just need to be realistic about what they offer in a relationship. <laughs> Cats obviously die too, but they ask for nothing before they go. Yeah. Except... I mean, except perfunctory things like leave enough biscuits in the bowl, mate. Like, they yeah, just sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They look at, give you a snide look, but they're more like teenagers' cats. I had a, a tip recently. A friend of mine said, when your children become teenagers, get a dog then, so somebody is pleased to see you when you get home. Oh. I think it's a very good tip. I thought you meant so the teenagers had to walk the dog and got oh, them out of their rooms. Happening, I don't think. No, well, yeah. the other day I said to my friend, does your son still believe in Santa? And he said, he doesn't believe in downstairs. <laughs> wow. Santa is a regret of mine because I found out in too a way early. that... I just found out in a way that, you know... <gasps> Did you lose your virginity to him? <laughs> no, sorry. This has gone way too dark too early. Actually, do you know what? I regret less finding out about Santa because I worked it out for myself and I did some Columbus Star sleuthing, so I felt clever. I now look back and I think I regret less that than how I found out about sex, which was on a school camp when I was 12, which I think is probably too late. Um, <laughs> these Didn't girls... know it existed before then. No. I just thought a man and a woman, well, they got married and moved in together because, you know, I lived in a conservative part of Australia where that's what happened to everyone. Um, I mean, the other people just left. The people who didn't yeah, want to do yeah, that left where we were yeah. living. Yeah, they went to a city. And so you, there was no evidence of other lifestyles that weren't a man and a woman getting married and having children. And so 
I found out because there's girls at camp, Bible camp, obviously, it's always fucking Bible camp. <laughs> it's Christian camps, by the way, are filthy. If you were sending your children off for happy, clappy, you know, it was, I mean, most of my childhood was praying in the bush. But, you know, there was these... That's true, it's true. I didn't mean that kind of... No, I know. It's Australians in their bushes. No, no, I didn't know anything about this. I just thought a man got married and then by living in close proximity, they would, presumably God, would bless them with a child (laughs) or curse them with barrenness. I'd read the Bible. And, (laughs) and, uh, And these girls told me about what happened... I mean, I won't say it here in case anyone doesn't know, but it's, cause it's unpleasant. How it's accurate unpleasant. were they? It's unpleasant. Well, I went home and I said to my mother, I'll never forget it, she was in the garden, and I went into the garden and I said to my mother, I heard this at camp, is this true? And she said, yes, it is, darling. And I said, and did you do that with Daddy? And she said, well, I certainly didn't do it with anyone else, darling. And that was the end of my sex education. Okay. Seriously, I regret that a bit. I wish she'd told me, but also I, I suppose I'd regret that. Yeah. I'd regret that conversation as well. Did your parents tell you about sex? No. In fact, the only... Um, he sort of, you know, just put books on your floor to, you know, read about it. They put books on your floor? Well, no, you know, just sort of go here. Well, you'd book come in after school and there'd be just a, seat, a book, book in the middle sex. of the floor. Yes. <laughs> just that you trip over. I remember over. My, my sister asking what a penis was. I remember that quite clearly. Oh, and what is I, a penis? Just I out of interest. I'm not telling you, you. You're not ready for that. Um, know, well, I didn't know that a penis got erect. I thought you just had to I stuff it in most, like a yes! marshmallow. I thought. Worse than that, I thought you had to get all three bits in. Oh. When, when it was stopped. That's why I, I didn't. Until I saw an erect time. penis, I didn't know they went hard. Oh, and that's the scariest bit, isn't it? Well, the, the fact that they move without yes. their, the owner's permission, yeah. And they become, you know, they're, they're not just scary when they're just Can you imagine if around. you, as a sort of cis woman, mm. when you fancied someone at a party, your arm just started to... <laughs> and you couldn't get it down. You're pushing it down, and it wouldn't... I mean, do you see what I mean, though? Yeah. That is, if that happened to women, that would have been called witchcraft, and we all would have just... been burnt in the Middle Ages. <laughs> it's not right. just feel like men... Are don't know how you live with those things that's having a part of your body that cis men have a part of their body that moves without their permission and i think it's wrong um um, so we're talking about regret and uh regrets we've had a few and about i suppose what that means for feminism that sometimes i think we're dragging so much regret around that it stops us being these kind of powerful wonder women because we're thinking oh maybe we should have done that or maybe we should have done that and I think the patriarchy is always keeping us in a regretful state by showing us alternative lifestyles and doors that we should have gone through and what bachelor number three could have been yeah I think expectations are just very very different Mm. that sort of women should have it all and also Facebook doesn't help because it's constantly showing you what other people pretend to have yeah 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 and we all know that's a lie well let's hope so We're constantly sold what we should be. And I think what that means is we go, oh, perhaps if I'd done that, I could have been that billboard. Oh, really? Well, I think that's what the idea of it is. I'm not saying you should yeah. live, you do live like that or anyone should live like that, obviously. Because if we weren't looking at that and going, we should have all of that, yeah. I think we'd have fewer think, regrets. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, um, we're much worse at letting things go. I don't know about you, but I literally, probably three or four times a week, I wake up in the night and sort of emit a small noise... Usually like this. Oh! When I remember something I said or didn't say in about 1998. Honestly. And I hate myself for it. And most of the time, it's not even that bad. It really is. And I I have, on three or four occasions now, apologised to people for things that I've said to them that I could see upset them at the time. And every single time... They haven't had a clue what I was talking about. Oh, yeah. So I've just told them something rude I once said to them. And then they go, oh, God, yeah, that is a bit rude. Oh, oh, yeah. So I feel like like just the time Chandler goes around to apologise for breaking up with a girl and she didn't understand the reason Mm. why he went. So basically, you're Chandler from France. Yes, I am. I am. But I knew this anyway. Yeah. Yeah, No, I do too. I get massive cringe. Does everyone get it? Is everyone constantly in a state of cringing about something that they're... I'm wondering if we should all do much worse things and, you know, just feel bad. You murder someone, you probably just think about that. 
all the time. The views of and Margaret Payborn really Smith think- are not necessarily those of the Guilty Feminist podcast, <laughs> and I think we need to make that clear. If anyone here does murder anyone, that was more of a serving suggestion from Margaret. Wow, it 50 wasn't. million people. You probably are going to get a murderer at okay, some point. Okay, so we you? should probably... <laughs> Are you ready for some stand-up comedy about regret? (laughs) (laughs) Then please welcome to the stage the wonderful Margaret Cable Smith! Hello! I have been thinking a lot about regret because recently my friend and I were asked to write down the number of our sexual partners. Now... Give me a cheer if you're happy about the number of sexual partners you have. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, I'm impressed by that because basically neither of us were happy about the number. We weren't in a clinic, by the way. Um, (laughs) It was at a game show, which is sort of weirder, really, that we were doing a game show where they'd asked us this. But anyway, she very much wanted to have fewer on hers, and I very much wanted to bump my number up. Um, so she was saying things like, well, it's not sex if you keep your bra on, is it? Or, uh, or um, I mean, he only put the tip in, so that's... No, I'm not counting that. Whereas I was spending my time going, you know, chewing the end of my pencil and thinking, ah, oh, what about that time I got quite aroused when that boy gave me a piggyback across the campsite? <laughs> I never would have believed this was true when I was younger and doing this, but I actually miss dry humping. Because, no, because you don't do it as an adult, do you? It's not, and there's something quite, quite sexy and illicit about it. But as soon as you start wet humping, which is what, what's what we all call sex, come on, um, you just don't do it anymore because it's just not done. It's like you're not allowed to put the kids to bed and go and have a snog in a bus shelter. Just not done. You're just not supposed to do that. But no, my advice for living with regret is to put a positive spin on it. For example, this is a really, really good icebreaker. I was at a party recently and someone asked, what's the most embarrassing thing you've ever done? And I'm telling you now, no one will tell you their number one. Nobody. And you think about it, you're not going to tell anyone the number one. My favourite thing was a guy who was sitting there said... That will remain between me and the person who opened the door, (laughs) which I just loved. But there was one very sweet, sort of softly spoken woman who said, no, I can't, I can't, I can't tell you. I'll tell you my, I'll tell you my number two. So, all right, go on, tell us us your number two. And she said, well, I went to this, um, this sauna and, uh, you know, it was an all-female all, all sauna and she was in there and she was feeling very British and buttoned up. But gradually, everybody else was, you know, just letting it all hang out. So she's like, OK. So she dropped her towel and was like, and, you know, was feeling very relaxed and zen and dehydrated. So she went to the attendant and said, um, is, is there any water around? And the attendant said, yeah, yeah, it's just around that corner. And so she's like, oh, great. And she went around the corner and there was sort of quite a long white corridor. She's like, OK, well... She walks along the white corridor and there's a sort of counter at the end. Obviously feeling a little bit more naked now. Um, And a woman appears, you know, clothed, but says, oh, can I help you? But she doesn't bat an eyelid. And and she says, oh, uh, yes, could I have a... um, Is there any water? And she said, I'll I'll go and get you a bottle. And she disappears. And then a door that she hasn't noticed opens and about 10 or 20 completely clothed people come in. And she realises she's in a gym canteen. (laughs) naked and the amazing thing was she styled it out she said well I just waited for the water (laughs) you know what are you going to do this was her number two story how is that possible and anyway the last thing I want to say about regret is don't leave things unsaid genuinely don't leave things unsaid I got married a couple of years ago and I had an amazing day I had a really you know as it should be sort of overwhelming moving day and a very old friend of mine came up in the evening and she was quite emotional and she said Margaret I'm so overwhelmed by today and I said oh no I know me too and she said it's just it's just so amazing and you look fabulous and you've got all of these people and the speeches were beautiful and you must just be feeling so so loved and so lucky and I said I yeah I really really am and she said I just want you to remember one thing and I sort of prepared myself oh my god what's this gonna be and she said I beat you in history a level thank you regrets
Our guests today are the creators of the amazing play, The Half. Please welcome the writer of the play, Danielle Ward, and one of the performers in it, Anna Crilly. I love you brought your handbags. You've both brought your handbags on stage, and it makes me think you don't trust the guilty feminist audience. Yeah, you thought, no, they'll have my iPhone away. Actually, I was sort of thinking, well, like, when I've done this bit, I could just sort of get my handbag and go home. (laughs) (laughs) But I realise now I look like... No, the no, queen no. might like go <laughs> no, on stage with no, her handbag. I, no. Always keep your bag with you. Never yeah. get separated from your bag. That's a rule for life. My bag has got um, my laptop in it, which has all my work, including a script that I was writing today for Idris Elba. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. so if that gets nicked, I am screwed. Yeah. And it also contains a Gordon's bottle of gin that contains beefy to gin. Well, there, no. Do you know once... As all bags do. Once, I'd been sitting in a cafe writing a script and it was a commission, so it was, you know, worth money, definitely. Yeah. And I was walking home. I think I'd got my iPhone out on the high street, then I'd put it in the bag and then I, someone had followed me and he'd waited until I got onto my street, which is dark. And I just felt him pulling it from behind. And of course, you are meant to let go because yeah. you're meant to not risk your life. But I knew the script was in there and I thought, this laptop's going to be you know, 100 quid at a pawn shop if that. But to me, it's very valuable because I cannot rewrite all of that. Yeah, yeah. So I just turned around, faced him and screamed in his face and I went towards him. Now, this is not advisable. <laughs> but he freaked out and ran away. And I felt so sorry for him, actually, because he was, I was only... <laughs> did because he was like 17 or something and I just thought obviously his older brothers taught him how to like five phones or something and I just bumped into a kid that I knew who was trying to get work experience and I said oh I'll set you up you know I'll, I'll sort you out a meeting in television and I just thought this kid's got no one setting him up a meeting in television and I wanted to chase him and trip him up and offer to retrain him <laughs> but you can't do that because it could be assault now yeah. you've written a brilliant play called The Half and here's the twist Margaret and Anna are in it Together, yeah. I know. Margaret is half of the half. Okay. Anna's the other half of the half, and Danielle Ward wrote it. The whole thing. The whole, the whole the you half. Wrote the, you wrote the yes. whole of the half. Yes. So could you just tell us a little bit? I like to think of it as a platonic love story of two women, and they are picking over the bones of that relationship. Mm. But... It's set in the world of comedy. It's about a female double act who haven't performed together for 10 years and they come back to perform together. But for me, the fact it's set in the world of comedy is just because that's what I do for a living. And if I was an accountant, I'd have set it there. And they probably... don't really have double acts in accountancy, <laughs> I'm telling you. Oh, I don't think that's true. Any accountancy in there probably are double acts, aren't they? They're probably... do you... Is there some kind of allegiances that you form across the office? Two sides See? of one floor be at war with each other, according to one of the Guilty Feminist listeners. <laughs> so you're absolutely right, Daniel. The accountancy, Romeo. Have you thought yeah. about changing it to calling it the auditors? I could have done. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so, and, and that's what it is. Like, for me, the interesting thing is exploring a platonic female friendship. Mm-hmm. But there are loads of other things in it. There's, there's the ages. And it make, it's clear that it's platonic because early on, Margaret says, I like cock. We had to much. flag it up. Yeah. yeah she, she says, early on be, and later. She on. says, I'd be a great lesbian, but I really love cock. And it was said with such relish. But that is because. So they. Are you come... imagining a relish on a penis? Because I am. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I don't imagine chutney on a cock. That's there are no penises in there. Sorry, Danielle, continue. That's why they call it gentleman's relish. Oh. That's what that is, yeah. Do they? Yeah. Taste. It's very salty. Anna's face. If you're listening at home, you're missing Anna's face. I'm a bit of a prude when it comes to this <laughs> sort fair of play, stuff. Fair play. Fair play. Sorry. Continue with the importance. That stuff. is because that is right. So the reason she says I love cock is because they've come together to perform whatever happened to Baby Jane. And there's also a little bit of um, so Joan Crawford, quite famously, we all know this about Joan Crawford, right? Used to fuck truckers. So that's kind of where that came from. It's the when exploring them as a female double act in this friendship, I also had read a book about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, and Betty Davis was always quite uptight about her sexuality, and Joan Crawford really loved to explore it, but that was never really portrayed on screen, and that's where the thing about loving cock comes from. Yeah. Well, there's, it, was, it was brilliantly funny. I saw the play this afternoon, and I found it hysterically funny, but also quite moving and sad in ways. And if you... I mean, for me as a woman in comedy... I mean, I found it at times 
you know, like a knife to the heart. Watching both sides of a double act regret different things and at times I really felt that I was one character, at times I felt like I was the other character. But the issue of whether to have children or whether to have a career and can you have both comes up and it really, I just did think... I'm glad I was in a good mood when I saw it uh, because I felt like, oh, God, oh, God. But if you're not in comedy, I think what Daniel says is true. You'll map your own life experience on it. But it's a very affecting play, I think, and uh, I highly recommend everyone go and see it because it's very powerful. And there's not that much written for two women by a woman. Like, often there's things written for two women by By a man. man. And, yeah, and then... (laughs) And then they do generally start kissing in their (laughs) pyjamas. And I really, which is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with kissing in your pyjamas. I'm not saying that. But I'm not slut-shaming all of the plays at the Royal Court. But (laughs) I am saying I really loved that it was just about that amazing friendship that you can have with a woman. And you can have no friendship like it and sometimes no rivalry like it. And no one can hurt you the way a woman can hurt you sometimes. And I say this across the plethora, whether you're, you know, gay or straight, nobody can hurt you like a close platonic friendship sometimes. Do you know what I mean by that? Sort of a bit like dogs, isn't it? (laughs) Like, you know that thing (laughs) where dogs read you because they sit and watch you constantly. Mm. So they learn, you put on your perfume, you're probably going out. More sad face. You put on (laughs) uh, a certain top or you start putting on your makeup. My dog will watch me put on my makeup. And sort of like in a female double act, I think you spend so much time watching each other that you start to know how to get to that person. And I think that's what Danielle's done really brilliantly in this play, is that Mm. you just know the buttons to press because you spend so much time in each other's company. Yeah, exactly. It's like a family as well. It's like every argument that I have with my sister has the echoes of arguments that we've been having Mm. since, you know, so I make her feel stupid and she makes me feel mad. And that is the way our arguments Mm, go. mm, mm. Um, And it doesn't matter what it's about. I remember having um, crying in a cupboard uh, (laughs) after having an argument about, oh, what was it? I think it was... Uh, it was about Michael Jackson. It was nearly always about Michael Jackson. <laughs> but I remember That's not my... where I was expecting that to go, No, no and it was, it was very you. much That's, pre... It was very much pre... You know, it was about his performance on the Brits, in fact. I think she was defending him. <laughs> and I was saying Jarvis Cocker was right. Anyway, well, I was crying this in a story cupboard. so much that yeah. it's on the nose. Continue. <laughs> yeah. And I was crying in a cupboard, too old at that point, can I say. I remember my best friend coming in and saying, Margaret, this isn't about Michael Jackson, is it? <laughs> And I said, yeah, yeah, it is, it is, because it was, but it also had all of those terrible things that my, you know, that you mm, do with your that sisters. that you can push. Yeah. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah Francis-White from The Guilty Feminist, briefly interrupting your podcast to let you know about some upcoming activities. On the 1st of October, we will be in Dublin at the Vicar Street Theatre, and Alison Spitter will be co-hosting that podcast. Please come along. It's going to be a very exciting night. On the 10th of October, we will be in London at the Barbican. It'll be another really big show like the Palladium. It's a 2,000-seater. Please get your tickets now. It will be all singing, all dancing, and will include, in fact, a performance by Suffragedon, as well as lots of your favourite Guilty Feminist comedians. On the 20th of October... We will be at the Liverpool Playhouse. And you can see details of all these upcoming shows at guiltyfeminist.com. I have written a book, which I'm very excited about. It's got lots and lots of new material about uh, my views on contemporary feminism and guilty feminism, as well as a few old favourites that people have asked for to have in print. You can order it from Waterstones and you can go to guiltyfeminist.com and click on book to find out how to do that. It's coming out in September. If you're international, you might want to go to amazon.co.uk. I am doing some book tour events in September when the book is released. The events that are sold out now are the ones in London, Manchester, Leeds and Glasgow, but there are still tickets for the book events in Brighton, Liverpool and Birmingham. It's £20 a ticket, but you get a hardback book included in the price. And I will be on stage talking about the book, being interviewed about the book, doing a reading from the book. And I'm happy to sign your book afterwards and say in it anything you like. So please come along to one of those events if you can. The book will be out September 6th and all of the events are in September. Check them out at guiltyfeminist.com.
Now, I said last week I had some exciting news about the Edinburgh Festival. Our shows are sold out. But here's the news. Amnesty International UK and The Guilty Feminist presents The Secret Policeman's podcast. It's hosted by me. And The Guilty Feminist is joining forces with Amnesty International UK to bring The Secret Policeman back to life for 2018. Following the magnificent Secret Policeman's tradition of presenting comedy greats for a night of misbehaviour, which goes all the way back to the 1970s, a hugely talented and diverse bill of performers will create some hysterical comedy and magical music. We will bring the funny to the Edinburgh Playhouse for two rocking historical nights, but cannot guarantee the roof will be where it was when we leave. The Secret Policeman's podcast is at the Playhouse Theatre in Edinburgh on Friday the 24th and Saturday the 25th of August from 7.30pm to 10pm. Tickets for the event will cost £25 and will go on sale Wednesday the 1st of August, so you're the first to know. All profits from sales are donated to Amnesty International UK Section Charitable Trust. Get your tickets. It's going to be an extraordinary night. We will announce the bill next week, but there will be a lot of your guilty feminist favourites on it. It's going to be a truly, truly wonderful and memorable night. On an upcoming episode that we've already recorded, but hasn't been released yet, we feature an incredible a cappella group in the style of Pitch Perfect, the Oxford Bells. They're young women from Oxford University and Oxford Brooks University who do amazing a cappella singing. Their show this year at the Edinburgh Fringe is called Women of Note. And they are on at 1pm at Sea Venues between August 11th and 18th. And I wanted to let you know now, in case you're going up to the Edinburgh Fringe, they're truly amazing. I don't want you to hear them later and be sorry you missed them. So here is a little trailer of the Oxford Bells, Women of Note. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Acast anbefaler. Well, 
Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcaster, forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. 3. Five, not going blonde in my 20s because I was waiting until I was thin enough. Six, not going blonde enough now because I'm waiting until I look like I'm in my 20s again. <laughs> Seven, not buying real estate when I left university and it was relatively accessibly priced and there were 110% mortgages and having paid off a flat by now. Eight, not having the kind of job that would have made any real estate accessibly priced ever. <laughs> Nine, every job I started and gave up within two weeks that would have allowed me to find any real estate accessibly priced ever. <laughs> Ten, watching season five of Ali McBeal. <laughs> A waste of time, man. And I, I stuck it out. Was, what? Dame Edna Everidge was it? What was that? It was disgraceful. Eleven, in the 10 regrets. <laughs> Not having children, but also I know I'd regret having them just as much, but at least I'm allowed to admit regretting not having them in public. Pretty <laughs> story. My friends with children only admit they regret it when they're very drunk. It's true. Really late at night, which is like, I just wish I'd done what you've done. And you're traveling to New York and you've got a, a comedy, and I was like, uh, but I, I wouldn't have them any other way. I would have it any other way. <laughs> I've had that conversation more than once. I've had to talk them down from a four-year-old and six-year-old twins. <laughs> Maybe they just say it to make me feel better. They don't. <laughs> Ten things I don't regret that you'd think I would. Comedy. <laughs> Comedy improvisation. Watching seasons one to four of Ali McBeal. <laughs> Solid, they stand up. I mean, they're dated, but they stand up in a way that, you know, they were very innovative. The 21 scripts in my drawer that I have written that took thousands of hours that are as yet unmade because it meant that one script was made. It's not come out yet, so the applause is probably previous, but still, I know, I know it's made. Uh, having cats instead of children, 28 days out of every given month, I don't regret that. February is particularly cheerful. Being a Jehovah's Witness, it gives you loads of comedy material and empathy, and the baseball bat in the face realization that you're going to die. <laughs> and also, I mean, people think stand-up comedy's hard, but at least you've left the fucking house. <laughs> Not being flaky and turning up for things when I should be doing self-care, because sometimes being reliable in a world of cancellation is just valuable. Even if you're exhausted, even if, even if, if, sometimes it's just good to be where you said you would be and be the friend or be the person. Be reliable. I just think it's good to be reliable. People, oh, I should have looked after myself. No, sometimes you shouldn't look after yourself. You should look after other people. Other people need looking after too. <laughs> Self-care is also important. 
holding out and waiting for him to apologise to me. (laughs) Telling him to fuck off. Not literally, but metaphorically by changing the subject when he apologised. Trying Hollywood. And everything I've ever done, including all the things on my regret list, because they've got me here today, and without them, I wouldn't have Tom and The Guilty Feminist and all the amazing direct action that we're doing together. So I don't regret anything most of the time. Thank you very much. What made you write this play, Danielle? Partly from a... uh, And I hope this doesn't sound too cynical. I think when I... And also, this is really interesting when you look at the context of what Hannah Gadsby's been able to do in comedy. I was frustrated with stand-up comedy in terms of an audience, especially a club gig, an audience will sit there going, come on then, make me laugh. They don't mind having a little bit of an emotional journey, but generally it was like, you make them laugh loads, laugh loads, that earns you a 40-minute point where you get to do something a little bit sad, but then laugh, 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 and the end of the show. And I found it frustrating only ever being able to write to order for jokes. And what I really wanted to do was write something that took an audience from really laughing to somewhere quite tragic. And so I wanted to be able to explore that journey as a writer. The reason that I chose the setup of a double act is I remember saying to Margaret when I was drunk, so we did a read-through years ago. Margaret did a read-through for me of a very early version of the script where it was just 15 minutes, two women slagging off panel shows. That was literally, it was just two women basically having a go at Frankie Boyle. Uh, That's not in the script anymore. He's changed. Um, But it still brought up the thing of whether to have children or not and whether to go to LA or not or what you should do with your career. One of you wants to stick to the art. The other one is about entertaining the audience. I think we all do. We grapple with, are we doing the right thing? Is the path that I've chosen the right path? And maybe exploring that for me personally in a different fashion by playing out these two sides. Like, they're both me. Like, there's things that happen in the play. There's a bit about a sexual assault that's partly taken from my own life and partly taken from stories that I've heard other comics come up with. It's all grounded in my own feelings towards myself. But equally, when we got into the rehearsal room, I spoke to Anna and Margaret. I've never been in a double act. And I spoke to Anna and Margaret and took a lot of guidance on what it's like to actually have someone else that you love and trust say those things to you rather than just saying them to yourself sat outside a bin. (laughs) Yeah, that other person or that best friend. And in a double act, that best friend also becomes that sort of trusted advisor and working partner as well. And it sort of can deepen the relationship and complicate it. There is a real Me Too element in it about how women feel complicit or are accused of being complicit sometimes in their own sexual assault because unless they go and report it instantly or refuse other career opportunities linked to that person, then somehow we feel complicit or we feel guilty. And really, actually, the greater victimhood sometimes comes on you after that act has been perpetrated and you're left to deal with whatever you do. There's an element of guilt or there's an element of self-doubt. And that's a really interesting thing that's explored in the show. Well, it, it was interesting, the Harvey Weinstein thing. What was so interesting about that was how quickly it became about all the women who hadn't said anything. You know, like the day after it came Meryl out, Street, all of these pictures of him with knew? lots of, with lots of women. It's going, hold on, can we not talk about him mm. a, like, a little bit, bit. longer? And also, we... Meryl Streep said she didn't know. And I'm like, if she didn't have any evidence, can you imagine what she would have got if she'd gone, look, I've heard a lot of rumours about Harvey Weinstein. I can't prove any of them. Can you imagine what would have happened to her career? Yeah. Like, what option did she have? I don't know whether she'd never heard anything or she'd heard things, but I've heard things about people in comedy. I can't prove them. So it's unlikely that, I'm, I mean, I might say tonight, but um, if I haven't, if someone gets me a gin and tonic. But um, if you haven't got any evidence, you can't just be going Spread around. Stuff. No. You can't, no, and that's the problem. You can't do that. And also you, there are, so there was a bit that got cut from the play because it ended up making the scene too long. So one character uses the sexual assault of another to kind of have a go at her. And there was a little bit afterwards where, explored the Savile thing and one of the characters says look the worst thing that ever happened to the BBC was Jimmy Savile and the BBC still standing do you think Mm. anybody is going to care what happened to me it's so tiny compared to that and I do think that's still the case like I know someone who um there was a producer that they didn't want to work with because they'd not like you know I say oh it's 
it felt like I'm trivialising it now. They'd just been a bit handsy. But that's still a horrible thing to happen. And they said, I don't want to work with this person. It's still sexual assault. And even I feel weird for going, but it was just this, because, you know, compared to... No, but that's what we're... That's what we do, That's the narrative and the rhetoric and compared to you and all of that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And so they said, I don't want to work with this person anymore. And it was like, fine, fine, yeah, we'll never let you. And then that creeps back in and Mm. the next... And they end up having to work with them because it's four years down the line and it's a different line manager and there was never a report and this person that they don't want to work with is still in the system, they're still there. What are you going to do? And that happens and it's endemic. It's not just the comedy industry, obviously. I think it's endemic across all industries. I have only ever had one experience of sexual assault. It was by a male comic after a gig. But I don't know if he's ever done that to anybody else. And again, it feels so weird saying this, it could have been a misjudgment. But also, he could have done it to 20 other people that month, and I don't know. So what am I going to do? Say his name and hope other people come forward? Because then I become the story. We've seen it happen so many times. And I'm not prepared to do that. I understand what you mean. And the play explores, goes down some avenues like that, as well as being very funny and about It is funny things, as well. Yeah, I think we need to... About being... <laughs> It's so one scene. It's very... That was only one scene. It is very, very relatable. If you've ever had a female friend and have felt some resentment, <laughs> um, just give us an mm if you know that feeling. And you feel like uh, hardly done by, just give us an mm. Yes. And you feel like your friend hasn't been the feminist she should have been in the friendship. <laughs> then this play is for you. But also, if you've ever had that dichotomy around whether to have children and what that's going to do to your life and career, this play is also for you. It's very, very interesting. It's funny. It's moving. And your character is... Is it tough to play sometimes? Or are you really enjoying it? It's very meaty. Oh, what? <laughs> um, I feel like your character's dark and meaty. I mean, is that, you? is that a description I'm allowed to I use? I wasn't dark and meaty? going for dark and meaty. You can put, put that on the but poster, I'll take Danny. It. Yeah, yeah. Dark, dark and meaty. meaty. Guilty feminist. Yeah. Um, we are going to use that. I mean, seriously, yeah. Dark and meaty. Yeah. <laughs> She's quite troubled and it's complicated, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is she enjoyable to play? Yeah. I mean, I just sort of, I go the first half sort of being silly and doing a voice. And then the second <laughs> bit, I sort of turn on the taps. <laughs> And that's acting, And that's acting, and that's acting yeah. darling. <laughs> Where can you see these diamond performances, which it, they really are, they're brilliant performances. It's, um, it's on at the Pleasance upstairs for the whole of Edinburgh at two o'clock in the afternoon. And by the whole of Edinburgh, Danielle does mean oh, the yeah. Edinburgh Festival. <laughs> yeah, not, not until Edinburgh is destroyed. Comedians talk about Edinburgh like it's Brigadoon, like it's like, it's a month. It's like, it's like it is, and it goes away. It's a city all year round, and our Edinburgh <laughs> listeners... No, it's just, we all do it. We all talk about, well, at the end of Edinburgh. Like, it's, yeah. oh, like it just God. goes May, yeah. June, July, so the Edinburgh, September, October, November. It's true, it's true. I know someone once at a passport office that was saying, yeah, I was born on the 7th of Edinburgh, and the guy was <laughs> looking at me, he's going, oh, I'm in August. Um, so it's on the whole of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Yes. Uh, what time? 2pm at the Pleasance Courtyard. Pleasance Courtyard. Go along and check it out. There'll be previews before. Um, you can find it at, is it the Half the Play on Twitter? I don't know. Yes. The half play. The half play on Twitter. But I do thoroughly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. I laughed, I cried. I thought I still feel a little bit like... (gasps) Which is always the best. Now, speaking of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, I am going to invite a man onto the stage. (laughs) I know. Now, there's a reason for this, and I will explain in a little bit... But I want him to come up and do five minutes of stand-up. He's a very good friend of mine. He's also a man who comes to my husband's poker game. (laughs) But he's not the man I was talking about. He's also a very dear friend and a brilliant comedian. Please put your hands together and make extraordinary welcoming Guilty Feminist Noises for the wonderful Garrett Mellorick! Good evening, Guilty Feminists! Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm going to cut straight to the chase. It's a five-minute segment from a 55-minute show, so let's get down to brass tacks. Well, in April of this year, I was at the comedy store in the dressing room, and I was just about to walk on stage, and my wife, who always is very, very keen that I don't get blasé about doing things like that, she sent me a text message. And I pulled the phone out, and the text message said that she was pregnant. And I was absolutely overjoyed, but was presented with a problem, as every single joke I'd ever written immediately left my head. 
And then I walked on the stage, and I came up to the mic stand, and my brain was like, don't worry, I got this, and it whispered a routine, straight in my head, popped in. But it was a routine that opened my last show about how I didn't want to have children. <laughs> Which was perfect, actually, because I got a video of that, and I will be able to play it to my children. <laughs> and go, this is uh, that's what I said to a room full of strangers when I found out you were going to exist. <laughs> how soon after? Literally seconds. See the approval of the strangers? <laughs> Happy birthday. Um, that my, my mother, when my sister was 21 years of age, in her birthday card, my mother gave her the best birthday present I have ever seen anyone get given. She gave her the receipt for the alcohol and food that was consumed on the night she was accidentally conceived. <laughs> <laughs> what a present! And I was, I was 21, and I was like, Mom, where's my receipt? And she was like, you're the second child, you were planned. I was like, ah! <laughs> So one of the, that presented a number of problems. One of the main problems that that presented to me, my wife being pregnant, was I realised I knew absolutely nothing about pregnancy because I went to uh, an all-boys Catholic boarding school. Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so we had one lesson on pregnancy. Went like this. Uh, we all sat down. We were about 17. A priest came into the room. That's right, sir, a priest. And, um, and he said, Today, we are going to talk about a woman's right to choose. Now... I think we can all agree choice is a very good thing. Yes? Yes? <laughs> now, of course, nobody in their right mind would be in favour of terminating a pregnancy. Of course, nobody in their right mind would be in favour of something like that. But of course, we are all in favour of choice. Yes? Yes? <laughs> so, right, I will give you an example. We will, we will go an example. Okay, quality of life. That is, of course, a situation where we may wish to choose to terminate a pregnancy. Quality of life, of course, boys. Right, so example the first. You have a young child, they're going to be born into poverty. That's not a very nice life, is it, being poor? No. <laughs> going to be born into poverty. Furthermore, the child will be deaf. Won't be able to hear. Wouldn't be a very nice life then, would it? No. Not a very good quality of life, not being able to hear. So in this instance, we, of course, choose to terminate the pregnancy. Yes? Yes? Yes! <laughs> You've just killed Beethoven! <laughs> Heard of him? Fairly significant figure you're wiping off the face of the planet with your adherence to this ridiculous notion of choice. I'll give you another example. Example the second is a young lady she falls pregnant is not her husband's child. Oh dear, we better terminate the pregnancy. Yes, yes, you've just killed Jesus. <laughs> and then he wheeled in a video machine. And he showed us a video of an abortion happening live on a sonogram that was introduced by then-president of the National Rifle Association, Charlton Heston. And then he proceeded to go around the room going, So, you in favour? You in favour? And when he got to the end of the room, he spoke to my friend Oz. Oz refused to admit it was anything worse than squashing a fly, and the priest kicked a table over. That... <laughs> That was the sum total. So when my wife got uh, pregnant, I decided to... Uh, I'll get some books on pregnancy. Now, mate, um, I'll just tell you this, if... Uh, if you ever find yourself in a situation where your partner is pregnant and you want to get a book on pregnancy, do not get a pregnancy book aimed at men. Oh, my dear God. <laughs> I read two of them. I read two of them because I was like, oh, the, the first one might have just been an accident. But basically, they start off, they start off with chapters that go, Well, I found out my wife was pregnant. Um, I discovered there were no books written by men aimed at men describing pregnancy. So I was like, I'd better write one. Now... <laughs> When they say by men aimed at men, what they mean is written by fools aimed at fools. <laughs> they are all written like mid-90s copies of FHM. One of them said thing, 75% of lads upon finding out their missus is pregnant think, is it mine? No, they fucking don't! <laughs> they all do things like, who are you asking? Which hundred blokes did you do? Well, we went in this pub in the middle of the football and went, ah! <laughs> They're all written like mid-90s copies of FHM. If they use a word like cervix, they have to follow it two lines of banter, and it's just... <laughs> it's just unforgivably awful. So, um, to the gentleman in the room, please, if you ever find out one of your loved ones is pregnant and you want to gen up on the subject, do what I eventually did, which is buy a pregnancy book aimed at women and use all of my education, nounce and skill to do revolutionary things like replace words like you 
with words like her, and it was so much easier. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you so much for doing that stand-up. It was Thank lovely. you very much for having me. Yeah, it's um, an absolute pleasure to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about your show, how it started and how it's changed? Yes. So the slight uh, ruse there was sort of difficult to do in a five-minute segment is unfortunately uh, a number of weeks after that uh, we lost the baby. So I was sort of caught in this situation where I'd started the year and I was writing one show and then uh, I found out Sarah was pregnant and then I was writing another show and then the whole thing collapsed and then I wasn't really thinking about comedy so I just took a long time off comedy and uh, it sort of ended up that through the unfortunate situation we spent a long time making each other laugh and so I ended up thinking well what was I going to do eventually when it came round to doing Edinburgh because it's this as we've discussed here it's this thing that happens in August and it's sort of the train leaves the station in sort of December and I was like well I've got a third of two shows. Hmm. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, what I did, I then decided to kind of present them as like an unfinished demo. So I've got the first two pieces of the show as written, the piece I wrote earlier in the year, the piece I wrote during the pregnancy, and then I'm kind of doing a kind of meta exploration of why I can't finish either of those shows and kind of, I guess, a celebration of comedy and laughter and a show about how it was laughter that got us through it and just me and Sarah making each other laugh in the dark time was uh, really the only thing we had at certain points and I kind of wanted to share that so that's what I decided to do the show about um, so I yep. Thank you. so I wanted Garrett to come and share this because we were talking about Edinburgh uh, events tonight and I really wanted Garrett to come and talk about it because I think it's a really important show and I want to make sure the right audience finds Garrett in Edinburgh because Edinburgh can be a very soul-destroying place even if you've got a show you don't care much about. Um, <laughs> so if you are going to Edinburgh, seek Garrett's show out because I think it's going to be really special. Where can we see your show in Edinburgh, Garrett? It is on at five o'clock every day at the Tron. And, and what's it called? It is called Garrett Millerick's Sunflower. Okay, well, we will all come along and see that. Uh, in fact, if you're not going to the Edinburgh Festival, go to the Edinburgh Festival specifically to see <laughs> Garrett Millerick's Sunflower and also The Half by Danielle Ward, starring Margaret K. Bond-Smith and Anna Crilly. Also, on the Edinburgh Festival front, there was a tragic, tragic uh, murder of a young comedian who was walking home in Melbourne called Eurydice Dixon. And Edinburgh is a wonderful city and we adore it. But any time there's a festival, there's lots of people coming and going and there's uh, lots of alcohol and all sorts of things going on, you can feel more unsafe, especially if you are a visitor in that city. So you don't have your normal support networks, you don't have your normal routes home. So we are collectively uh, headed by the wonderful Angela Barnes, who's an amazing comedian. We are collectively getting together the Home Safe Collective. If you'd like to donate, we're collectively funding a Home Safe taxi fund so that if a woman or non-binary person or trans man does feel suddenly vulnerable and like, oh God, this guy's been hassling me or all my friends have gone home and now I'm not sure of the way or I suddenly get that bad feeling, they can ring up this taxi number and give them the code and a taxi will come for them. Those are some things that you can support at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year. Um, so I'd like to say a huge round of applause to the wonderful Alan Crilly, the excellent Danielle Ward, and the phenomenal Garrett Millerick, and my amazing co-pilot for this episode, Margaret Cable Smith. Thank you, David Francis White. You have been listening to the Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Margaret Cable Smith, and our very special guest, Danielle Ward, Anna Grilly, and Karen Millerick. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. Music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Selinsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe Jacobs, Annie, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Anna's just going to pop to the loo. Are you coming back? She's left her handbag. That's a good sign. <laughs> um, yeah. We've never had that before. But to be fair, she's not been working for a while. Um, I mean, on this stage. I mean, she works a lot. I don't mean that. That sounded like, oh, she's hardly worked. I mean, she, she, we have a put her to work for Deborah. a while. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, good.
Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Tom. Deborah is currently at the Help Refugees Calais Warehouse and has sent this report through today. The shelves of the warehouse are empty. This building, a hub of the operations across northern France, is really struggling to meet the needs of the people in Calais and Dunkirk. There are no tents, less than 500 blankets, around 100 pairs of shoes and no socks or underwear to be seen. Numbers are rising here through the summer months and we simply don't have the stock to be able to distribute essential items. Last night, people slept outside on the sides of motorways and under bridges with no shelter from the rain as we have no tents or emergency shelter to give. If we need one thing right now, it is donations. Please shout out to all your friends, colleagues and families to explain the situation. Our most needed items are small and medium men's clothes, size 41 to 43 trainers, tents and blankets. Information about how to send donations to our warehouse, please contact Calais Donations at helprefugees.org and find your nearest drop-off point or donate funds directly to our Calais warehouse at donate.helprefugees.org slash campaigns slash northern hyphen France. Items can also be delivered straight to us here in Calais through our leisure fair page or on our Amazon wish list. And I'll put both of those links, as well as the other two, in the show notes. Thank you for your generosity in supporting Help Refugees. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidesrætter alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.